0: Velvet Underground.
1: Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. Todd Haynes' documentary about the Velvet Underground is not just a musical feast, as one would expect, but it's also a visually rich and polyphonic work. Haynes has explored the mythology of glam rock and the many faces of Bob Dylan in his fiction films, and he turns his first documentary into a kind of multi channel installation for the cinema screen. He uses split screens extensively, for example, putting Andy Warhol's screen test series of filmed portraits into dialogue with other pictures, other people. The movie does the same thing with its sense of history, situating the Velvet Underground in relation to the avant-garde music and art scenes of 1960s New York. I recently spoke with Haynes, and we talked about his use of Warhol's films as well as the role of queerness in the identity of the Velvet Underground and Lou Reed, and which clip became a keystone for the entire film. Please note, Haynes was experiencing some technical difficulties, so our conversation begins with him in the middle of talking about what films were a prerequisite for making the documentary.
0: And then in terms of the films, it started with Warhol, obviously. That's, that's the place we had to begin yeah. it was the relationship that we wanted to inaugurate the process of archival um, scavenging with they were going to set the terms financially and in every other way with how what kind of material we were going to build upon there was no way to make this film without the warhol museum's consent okay. and participation so we we built from there and we built layers and layers and you know we had there are hundreds of hours of film that aren't in the film mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm always curious about these kind
1: of maybe it's too technical but what's the tipping point for an organization like the warhol foundation to to give the permission is it like you can only use there's a certain amount of footage or only these films or or what, what no, you,
0: no, it's really um it was really it was a negotiation that was um They understood the conceptual necessity of the films to the project, I think that gave them leverage over us, we had to convince them how much a film like this was ultimately going to serve the interests of the museum and the film archive. As you probably know, the foundation and the museum are utterly different entities and the foundation deals with Warhol's paintings. So the level of money that gets circulated in that organization is completely different than the kind of resources that circulate within the film archive Mm -hmm. and the museum itself in Pittsburgh. But we made our case and we established relationships with these guys, but developing the relationships with all of these different people was part of the process. Mm -hmm. of making the film i think it's true for documentaries in general it's Mm -hmm. true for rights holders in fictional films it's true for you know the relationships of the real people who own the material whose music you're using or whose subjects your stories you're telling they really hold the cards and you really it's always a dance around those very primary relationships and i've had a career that has been defined by various acceptance and rejection of my desire to create a relationship with the sources and the subjects of my films
1: Mm -hmm.
0: i i I was partly thinking about it because i was rereading interviews with you and
1: you know obviously we don't have to go into it but i you know i thought of bowie for for or fine obviously for that music and karen carpenter probably even more critically yeah 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 But, I mean, it's the use of the screen tests um, really allowed me to see them in an entirely new light. I mean, I found that they functioned in a different way when they weren't the only uh, image on the screen. When they were in conjunction with other images, the sense of time and how they worked changed. And even the sense of the personality of the person I felt I had access to in a different
0: way. I don't, does that make sense? Oh, completely. I, I feel the same way. It's almost always astonishing each time I see the film, the degree to which that is the case and the ways that the paralleling of the screen tests, particularly the beginning when they're played the longest, they're basically played in their entirety Mm -hmm. over the sections around Lou Reed and John Kell's childhoods. And you feel like not only are they existing in space and time, in a way we never experience in archival footage that is just so simple mm-hmm. and is so evocative and so present, you also feel like they're kind of witnessing what we're doing as storytellers. Yeah. And almost, you know, and this is something the viewer is attributing, like almost lose, flinch one way or the other is a commentary on on our storytelling and and how we're constructing his narrative. And I love that because it both it pulls you out, makes you aware of what we're doing. But then at another level, it just draws you deeper into the subjects themselves and the sense of there being these real people who don't have to do anything for us to sort of feel access to them. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I really feel that you
1: basically change the usual grammar, the film grammar, because usually, you know, if we see footage like that, or, or, I mean, any sort of archival or or other film footage, it's used as an illustration because of the way the grammar works. But by putting it on right. the screen at the same time, that's not what's happening. Things aren't there's not that hierarchy anymore.
0: Right. I mean, um, it's it, like when you watch when you watch Chelsea Girls. Yes. Which is a dual projector film, and projectionists are given a little bit of instruction to start the second reel like seven minutes or four minutes after the first reel. I forget what it exactly is, but even if they do it to the second, how the two reels of the film are going to interact with each other and when a crash pan on the left is going to land on a static shot on the right is always going to be different. And so the viewer possesses that. And, the, and that makes the performance of the film a live event each time. And it puts a, a completely different dynamic into the unknown of, which is never something we think of in, in film. Yeah, and, and in
1: a way connects it to early cinema as well, just, you know, with cranking <laughs> in a way, it's almost like- the, Yeah, right. Each particular screening is, is its own thing. Yeah. Um, but Chelsea Girls, yeah, I've, obviously that, I, w- I was thinking about that a lot. And uh, also because that's a Warhol film that, you know, I almost feel like people don't reckon with enough, also especially with the queerness of it. It's yeah. I feel like it's a Warhol like, artifact and curiosity, but mostly because I guess people don't really see it in full <laughs> or have an opportunity to. So, I mean, that's, that's sort of by way of bringing me to how you talk about Lou Reed in the movie. And uh, I wonder if you could talk about uh, that because it's, it's this interesting accretion of detail about his identity without trying to define it or fix it in any particular way. A side of Lou Reed that maybe gets elided if this was like a typical rock doc.
0: Well, to me, it was it was obviously the specifics of Lou's story, the the details of his um, exploration into gay bars, into sort of anonymous sex and and sort of transgressive settings and scenes and and, and writers and poets. Uh, and how that worked and immediately was present in some of his earliest uh, writing and, and compositions as a very young person. Um, this, was, this was all part of a discovery process for me. I knew some of that, I read some of that, but it's not until you really hear it be told to you by people who were there that, you, that it really lands. This, this sets up a, a very specific kind of person who is part of the Velvet Underground. But I also was very interested in extrapolating from that and really trying to talk about something even larger than Lou Reed and Lou Reed's own kind of um, creative and, and um, sexual sort of identity and search. And that is um, a kind of um, sort of You know, queer under- underground that Mm. defined the factory in its entirety and defined this kind of uh, culture in New York, that this band, this music and these art makers really defined and created for themselves. And that no matter whether you were literally gay or lesbian or, or having this kind of sex or that kind of sex, the, the way it made you think about the way it made you frame the world and look at the world was different. And that ultimately gets exposed to to members of this band and, and the, the Warhol team, the troupe, when they go to the West Coast in ways that are sort of humorous. But it's really profoundly at the core. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like the way they really saw themselves. Maybe, you know, in a way they hadn't before. Yeah. because they were living in this insular kind of world of just it's their own rules and their own ideas you know but when mary warnoff describes going to the west coast in one of the many humorous ways that she accounts it for that describes that and says they were homophobic we were homosexual she means something beyond actual sexual behavior and it's 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 ideological and aesthetic, this homosexuality, that was the umbrella for this cultural moment. Mm. And I think that's an incredibly essential thing to describe when you're telling the story of the Velvet Underground and reminding people all the ways that they were distinctive and, and radical. Yeah, it's, it's not just Lou Reed as
1: an observer, you know, of, of the margins. I have to ask about. Uh, one clip that I had never seen before, which, you know, I think basically concludes the film. Uh, Lou Reed, you know, answering the phone and oh, then yeah. the camera pans over and you realize Warhol is just sit- sitting back there and he's showing him a book. Can you tell me anything at all <laughs> about this
0: and w- where it is, what's happening? Uh, it's yeah. it's a, it's an interview by Bob Colacello at Interview Magazine. And it's Andy it's on video, and it's Andy. And it's it's Lou and Andy hanging out at the offices. I think of Interview Magazine. I'm not positive. And Lou showing Andy Rock Dreams, the book that had just come out that year, mm-hmm. and by the artist who would lay would was immediately the airbrush artist who was uh, um, immediately, and his name is escaping me. I'm a little jet Um, but he, he did the cover for. Diamond Dogs, he did the cover for it's only rock and roll. He was like the newest thing on the block first. I mean, um, and it's amazing. The whole book is incredible. It's, it's a it's a it's definitely something people should know about this. The book Rock Dreams, and it includes in it a double portrait of Lou and David Bowie, and then it has a portrait of the Velvet Underground. Those are the things uh, Lou is sharing with Andy in that clip. And, and, and why did you want to end with that? Because, um, well, we, I was astonished by it for many reasons to put Lou. Look, the absence of Lou Reed in this film Mm -hmm. is a structuring absence. Mm -hmm. And we tried to accommodate for it in all kinds of ways by including his voice from, from all of the recorded interviews and radio recordings broadcasts that we could find where he talked about the band. And, but still. There's something missing. You see him, you hear his voice in the performances and in the songs, and you see him in the center center of almost all the amazing photographs. Yeah, but there's still something missing, and I felt like I had to put this in. We didn't exactly know how we were going to use it because it's sort of out of our time frame. Mm-hmm. Similarly, the the clip that follows of the band performing at Bataclan in Paris, the reunion between right. Lou, John, and Nico in '72, the year before that. Colacello interview, and because you haven't seen Lou performing live, you haven't seen any of them ever performing live, really, with sync sound, and you haven't seen Lou speaking to the camera, those two moments in the film, I think, land with an incredible poignance due to the fact that Lou Reed wasn't with us for the making of this film. Mm -hmm. And so it stirs these desires for Lou Reed, a loss a regret that he isn't with us in a whole new way. You know, as you lead up to the eulogies um, named in the film and the way he talks about the members of the band, obviously, in that interview, it's just kind of kills you. So it was it was just something that we really wanted to make work in the film. It was a little bit of a balancing act to do so. But I think um, we did the best we could. No, I I, I love it. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you. Take care. care. Bye-bye. Thank you. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Monserrat. Thank you for listening.